Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of So Strange. I'm your host, Andy Myers. I'm an author and a paranormal researcher who recently, accidentally, walked underneath of a ladder. It's true. I was helping my good friend Anna hang some curtains at her photography studio, and I mindlessly walked under the ladder. I didn't even realize what I had done until it was too late. And they say that's about the worst thing you can possibly do in terms of bringing bad luck upon yourself, but so far, so good. Fingers crossed. But maybe bad luck doesn't exist. Maybe superstitions are, you know, nothing but hogwash and poppycock. There it is. I said poppycock on the show. Or uh, maybe the universe was simply looking the other way when I walked under the ladder. I guess the jury's still out. Uh, coincidentally, just a couple days later, as two men were carrying a giant wall mirror out of that very same studio, the mirror shattered into a million pieces. And I hope those nice guys are not cursed with seven years of bad luck, but perhaps we'll never know their fate. Do you, dear listener, believe in luck? Do you believe that Lady Luck smiles down upon us from time to time? You know, it's natural to thank our lucky stars when we happen to come across the best parking spot or when we find a $5 bill on the ground. It's also natural instinct to curse the heavens when we drop our keys into a storm drain or when a bird poops on our car just after we've uh, left the car wash. But regardless of your beliefs in terms of luck, I think you'll enjoy this episode. Uh, the following true stories will remind you that sometimes the difference between good luck and bad luck is smaller than you think. And sometimes it merely comes down to a matter of interpretation. So break out your lucky penny, grab your lucky rabbit's foot, and locate your four-leaf clovers, because things are about to get so strange. Now, before we officially get underway, I do have to offer a small disclaimer, a little trigger warning. If anyone listening is prone to anxiety or dealing with PTSD, uh, some of the stories uh, from today do, you know, depict uh, true accounts of, you know, car accidents, plane crashes, uh, some people passing away. I uh, just wanted to let you know that up front. Now, I wouldn't include that in the show without a purpose, so most of these stories, of course, have a silver lining having to do with luck or good fortune, uh, but just wanted to disclose that up front. When his car collided with a truck and he was crushed under the impact, everyone thought it was the end of the line for Australian Bill Morgan. Even the doctors didn't think he'd make it. Declared legally dead for more than 14 minutes, he was somehow revived and managed to survive after 12 days in a coma, even after family had removed life support. But his luck didn't end there. To celebrate his survival, he bought a scratch-it ticket and won a car worth $25,000. When the local news station heard about him and all his good fortune, they were so impressed they did a segment about him on the show. They asked him to reenact the scene by scratching off another card, only for him to win a whopping additional $250,000 on the live show. So maybe it was death going, my bad, dude. But honestly, I bet his first winning scratch ticket of 25000 just barely managed to cover his medical bills from his hospital stay. You know, so the universe was probably like, uh, here, have another quarter million. <laughs> and I guess it's only fair after what, everything that he was, uh, everything he went through. The odds of getting hit by lightning is 1 in 12,000, but for blind and deaf 62-year-old Edwin E. Robinson, those odds rose to 100%. 
Robinson wandered around outside in his field near his house, apparently looking for his chicken, swinging around his aluminum cane, and then taking shelter under the only tree when it began to rain. Uh, it was evidently too tempting for the lightning, which struck him to the ground. For 20 minutes, he lay unconscious before waking up and stumbling back to his house, going to bed for quite a well-deserved nap. After all, getting struck by lightning takes a bit out of you, don't you know? But when he woke up in the evening, he discovered that he could once again see and hear. He was later examined by doctors who confirmed that he had in fact regained both his sight and his hearing and probably survived the blast due to the rubber-soled shoes he had been wearing. That's incredible. <laughs> Mother Nature uh, shined down upon him and uh, granted him two of his five senses back. That's that's miraculous. Uh, speaking of lightning, lightning's going to come up a time or two in this show. So here's a couple fun facts about lightning, whether you want to hear this or not. <laughs> lightning is uh, 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is roughly five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Lightning flashes more than three million times a day worldwide, otherwise uh, 40 times a second. An average lightning bolt can release enough energy to operate a 100-watt light bulb for more than three months straight. And roughly one million joules uh, of energy is released during the average lightning strike. And if we managed, uh, if it was possible, to capture and contain every lightning bolt in the world over the course of a year, it would be enough to power 8% of American households for one year. And uh, thank you. This concludes our Lessons on Lightning segment. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. During the 12th century, Nichiren was a prominent Japanese monk who significantly influenced the Japanese adaptation of Buddhism. However, his life was one of controversy and turmoil. He was sentenced to death by beheading, and the authorities felt his writings were subversive and would undermine their power if it was allowed to spread. However, with a literal stroke of good luck, Nichiren managed to escape his doom when the executioner was struck and killed by lightning when he raised his sword to kill Nichiren. Nichiren was later released due to the strange circumstances, though he was still exiled and would later live the rest of his life out, out until old age. Uh, he amassed a following and became a prominent religious figure in the country, showing success can come even in the face of perceived doom with a little bit of fate to lend a hand. You know, after reading this story, my ADHD kicked in and my mind kind of wandered down a side street. And I couldn't help but wonder, like, you know, from a karmic perspective, how ironic would it be if a former executioner was reincarnated as like a brain surgeon or maybe like somebody who invented Tylenol? So, you know, like in one life, you're lopping off heads and then in the next lifetime, you're helping people with their headaches, you know, in the overall well-being of their noggin, if you will. But it would be like the universe's way of finding balance, right? And that thought gives me a gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. When you go skydiving, you expect a relative amount of danger to be involved. You are jumping out of a plane and hurtling toward the earth at terminal velocity, right? There's no possible way that there's something more dangerous than that. Except for Norwegian Anders Hellstrup, who ran into some complications, you might say. A meteorite hurtling down after him. And this wasn't just a story told by friends. Uh, they actually managed to capture, capture it on film. And uh, they uploaded it to the Internet, and it attracted the attention of the science community. It was later confirmed by a geologist that a meteorite had exploded about 20 kilometers above Hellstrup, 
and the video taken was the first ever video of a meteorite traveling through the air after its flame had gone out. Hellstrup spent the summer looking for the famed space rock in the surrounding area, but as of 2014 has not found it. Flaming space rocks. Uh, yeah, that'll make just about any activity more dangerous. Like, what if flaming balls from space... Um, hold all jokes to the end, please. What if flaming balls from space were, like, even more commonplace? You know, like, just something we dealt with on a daily basis. Like, you're interviewing for a job... And as they're hiring you, the boss is like, oh, yeah, so as it turns out, you'll be in the corner office over there where all the meteorites land. Last guy was hit in the head and killed. It was a whole big thing with corporate and HR. Yeah, those Perseids meteor showers in mid-August are a real doozy. <laughs> Anyways, good luck with that. Here's your helmet. You know, and if skydiving wasn't already badass, uh, Mr. Hellstrup can now boast that he's done so while simultaneously dodging space rocks. So that's truly remarkable. And as for those space rocks, you know, I already gave you some unsolicited facts about lightning, so I figured I'd throw in a few meteor facts as well. So that's right, here on So Strange, you might just learn something from time to time if you're not careful. So a meteorid is a rocky or iron debris floating through space that can be the size of a grain of sand or the size of a boulder. A meteor is a rocky debris that enters Earth's upper atmosphere and it begins to burn and blaze towards Earth and these are what we often call shooting stars or falling stars. And a meteorite is when a meteor makes it all the way down and crashes to the ground. And then its name changes from a meteor to a meteorite. So anyway, if you're ever on Jeopardy and flaming space balls is a category, you can thank me and give me a little shout out. You're welcome. And here's one more story, actually involving fiery rocks from the outer reaches of space. Ann Hodges was snuggled under a blanket on her couch in Alabama one afternoon in 1954, when a grapefruit-sized meteorite burst through the roof of her house, bounced off of a radio, and struck her in the left hip. She is thought to be the first person in modern history to be hit by a meteorite. She said, quote, I think God intended it for me. Trailed by a fireball big enough to be seen in three states, the space rock was traveling between 200 and 400 miles per hour when it reached her, according to scientists. Hodges was badly bruised but didn't sustain any serious injuries. Hodges died of unrelated causes in 1972, and the offending rock is on permanent display at the Alabama Museum of Natural History. And from space rocks, we now shift to a story that's far more terrestrial. Let's bring things down to earth a little bit. Here's a story about a garden and a ring. In 1995, Swedish woman Lena Paulson set aside her wedding ring to do some Christmas baking. When she went to return it to its rightful place on her finger, she discovered it was gone. After years of searching, she and her husband came to the conclusion that the ring was forever lost. That is, until 2012, nearly 16 years later, when Lena found something waiting for her in the garden. While pulling up carrots, Paulson was shocked to find her long-lost ring around one of the carrots. In an event so amazing, it caused her to let out a scream that her daughter could hear it all the way inside the house. Though the family has been gardening for years, there had been no sign of the ring. Apparently, this was the first time they'd planted carrots by simply throwing the seeds out randomly across the garden instead of planting them in nice, neat rows. The chance that one of the seeds had landed inside the ring and grown through it is like winning some sort of mini ring bottle toss at the carnival. But Lena could care less about the astronomical odds of how she got a ring back. She's just glad to have it back at all. 
You know, speaking of uh, rings turning up in the strangest places, I, I once heard a really cool story from a client of mine. True story. Uh, it was a nice lady. She had she was a widow. Her husband had passed like 20 years ago. And she was kind of a type A personality, you know, very neat and tidy. And she never remarried. So it was just her and herself and everything in her home was, was you know, put away and, and organized. And she actually kept her old wedding ring in a little box that was, un, you know, tucked underneath of her bed. Well, one day she comes home and she walks into her bedroom and she stopped dead in her tracks because right there um, on her neatly made bed, like right up near her pillow, was her wedding ring. It had mysteriously transported from the box underneath her bed and it rested right up near her, her pillows, just like a little mint, you know, that, that would be left on your pillow at a hotel. And, uh, you know, what makes it even crazier is I, it was either the uh, anniversary of her husband's death or it was their wedding anniversary. I can't remember that detail, but I mean, can you imagine <laughs> like uh, talk about signs from the afterlife, you know, just a, a wink and a hello and an I love you from her long lost husband. But uh, warmed my heart and I'll, I've never forgotten that story since. All right, we're about to crank up the voltage here with a couple stories involving Mother Nature's fireworks. So here's another incident involving lightning. Whether you consider yourself lucky or unlucky in life, you're inevitably left to play the hand of the cards that you're dealt with. But what if your hand includes four strikes of lightning? That was indeed the case for Walter Summerford, who was hit by lightning three separate times and once more after he was laid to rest. According to the National Severe Storms Laboratory, the odds of being struck by lightning in your lifetime are estimated to be 1 in 13,000. A bolt of lightning surging through your body can reach up to 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which, as we've already covered, is roughly five times hotter than the sun's surface. Luckily, the mortality rate from a lightning strike is relatively low, but the majority of survivors are left with profound cardiovascular and neurological complications. Major Walter Summerford was a British soldier uh, who went to battle in the First World War. In 1918, during a time when most soldiers were attempting to dodge bullets, one soldier was hit with a shocking surprise. Walter was galloping on his horse through a field in Belgium when lightning first struck him. Upon impact, he was flung off his horse and he was left paralyzed from the waist down. Forced into early retirement, Walter started a new life in Vancouver, Canada. He had been an avid sportsman and was engaged in many of the wondrous outdoor activities his new homeland had to offer. In 1924, Walter set off to fish along the shore of a local river. Little did he know, he was resting under the wrong tree at the wrong time. Without warning, a lightning bolt struck the tree Walter was under and surged through him, which resulted in the entire right side of his body being paralyzed. Miraculously, he recovered from the second bout of Mother Nature's electric slashing and regained the use of his legs. After two years, he was able to walk again, and he spent the majority of his time doing so. On a warm summer day in 1930, Walter decided to take a scenic stroll through a park. As fate would have it, this would be his last. The soft summer sky drew in dark, ominous clouds that rumbled with a sound all too familiar for Walter. For the third time in his life, a lightning bolt charged down from the sky, directly hitting him with so much force that the poor guy was completely paralyzed. In an unfortunate two-year struggle due to the complications caused by his last lightning incident, Walter passed away in 1930. Surrounded by family and friends as they mourned his death, he was laid to rest in the Mountain View Cemetery in Vancouver. While one might assume he was finally at peace, think again. They say Mother Nature is fickle, but I would not go so far as to call her forgetful. 
On a crisp spring night in 1936, another storm would prove to defy the already outrageous odds. While Walter rested underground in his grave four years after his death, another lightning strike would come crashing from the skies, and out of all the places it could hit, it was right through his gravestone. All right, so here we go again with another lightning story, right? Um, anyways, that's tragic. You know, poor guy had been through enough, but just for good measure, Mother Nature slammed down one last lightning bolt to his grave. Uh, it's kind of ruthless. But in terms of uh, luck and lightning strikes, uh, nobody had it worse than Roy Sullivan. Roy Sullivan was a United States Park Ranger in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, and he holds an impressive world record that he didn't receive by choice. Sullivan was struck by lightning on seven separate occasions between the years 1942 and 1977 and survived to tell about it. So in 1942, uh, he was in a fire lookout tower that didn't have a lightning rod installed. That was the first time he got hit. In 1969, uh, lightning hit a nearby tree and apparently ricocheted into his vehicle, which, okay, what the hell? I didn't know lightning could do that. Uh, so roll those windows up, uh, apparently, if it's storming. Uh, 1970, he was just minding his own business, gardening, took a hit there. Uh, 1972, in a national park, it, lightning bolt lit his hair on fire. In 73, he, out, he outran a, poor guy, he outran a storm in his truck, okay? But then he just couldn't help himself, and he thought he was past it. He got out to look at the storm. Nope, lightning bolt hit him again. It actually knocked one of his shoes off, and then, then it untied one of the shoelaces from his other shoe, which, again, I didn't know lightning could do that. <laughs> but it's like it has a mind of its own. And then in 76, he was struck at nearly the same place that he was hit in 1969. And uh, ultimately, Sullivan retired from the Park Service five months after his, his sixth lightning strike. He moved to a new town, which was appropriately named Dooms, Virginia. <laughs> he installed uh, lightning rods all around his house, trailer, and property. Um, I could just picture him shaking his fist at this guy. Come and get me now, you sons of bitches. But anyway, uh, while they protected him in his home, his seventh and last lightning strike actually occurred when he was trout fishing in June 1977, the bolt knocked him out of his boat and burnt his hair yet again. He's probably bald by this time. He also received burns to his chest and stomach, as well as the loss of hearing in one ear. His underwear and t-shirt had holes burnt in them. But check this out. The ordeal wasn't over. Uh, as Sullivan tried to make his way to his car, he encountered yet another problem. A black bear. A black bear was looking for lunch and zeroed in on the trout that Sullivan had caught. He hit the bear with a tree branch to get away, and he told the the newspaper in Virginia about his bear encounter and claimed that it was the 22nd, yes, the 22nd bear attack that he had dealt with in his lifetime. While the lightning bolts never killed Roy Sullivan, uh, he, he actually got the nickname of Human Lightning Rod, but uh, something else was apparently going on in, on in his mind and eventually caused his own demise. Um, in the early morning of September 28, 1983, uh, poor Mr. Sullivan died at the age of 71 as he took his own life. Poor guy, man. You know, it's one of those stories, uh, you know, you could lump this into the category of luckiest man ever or unluckiest man ever, depending on how you look at it. You know, if you're a glasses half full kind of person, you could say he was lucky to survive each strike and bear attack. Um, but on the flip side, we could, you know, we could assume that man, maybe homeboy like did something to really piss off Zeus, who was chucking lightning bolts at him like beads at a Mardi Gras party. Um, ultimately, it's a sad story. But, you know, as 
lightning, you know, lightning trivia 101. Apparently most people who get hit survive, but it does make me wonder and let me remind you, I'm I'm no scientist, but I do wonder if getting struck by lightning once might cause a person to be more likely to be struck again in the future. You know, does it leave some sort of static charge on a person's body that attracts more lightning strikes in the future? Uh, I'm not really sure, uh, but my ass is staying inside when I hear thunder outside. I can promise you that. I'm not really sure when it it started, my fear of, of lightning, uh, but, you know, sometime in my mid-20s maybe, I... Yeah, I'm deathly afraid of storms. I like the sound of rain. I like the sound of thunder if I'm inside. But when my daughter Sky was, gosh, she was probably three years old, and I was taking a walk with her through a nature trail, and it looked, you know, it looked nice out. But we heard a, you know, we heard a crack of of lightning and a rumble of thunder. Man, I scooped her up, and she was like clinging to my chest like a little baby monkey, and I, I, I just went sprinting. I was booking it. I was like Usain Bolt in the Olympics. I was gone. And I was, and it was just like, run, forced run. And I, I, I made it like nonstop four blocks with my daughter on my chest all the way back home. And I was like, nope, not getting this guy. You know, uh, chances, you know, the odds vary. But some people say one in 13,000 are your odds of getting hit by lightning. I guarantee your odds are 0% of being hit if you stay inside during a storm. Simple math. All right, this next story, uh, and I actually looked up uh, the the pronunciation of this lady's name because I didn't want to butcher it, and I may still butcher it, but it's a German, it it centers around a German lady. Uh, Her name is Juliane Kupka. Juliane was born in Lima, Peru in 1954 to German parents who worked at the Museum of Natural History in Lima. She was an only child of biologist Hans Wilhelm Kupka, and orthonologist Maria Kupka. When uh, Juliane was 14, her parents left Lima to establish Panguana, which was a research station in the Amazon rainforest. So she became known as, you know, the jungle child, and she learned survival techniques, and those would later come in handy. But uh, education authorities disapproved of Juliane, and she was required to return to her German school to take her examinations, and she, uh, she eventually graduated. But on Christmas Eve 1971, Juliane flew on a Lanza flight 508, and she was about to graduate from high school. Her mother Maria had wanted to return to Panguana with her daughter on December 19th, but Juliane wished to attend her graduation ceremony in Lima on the 23rd. So her mom agreed for Juliane to stay longer, and instead they scheduled a flight on Christmas Eve. So all the flights were booked, aside from one with an airline, this airline called Lanza. So her father, Hans Wilhelm, uh, urged his wife to avoid flying with the airline uh, because apparently they had a poor reputation. But they booked the flight anyways. And in midair, the plane was struck by lightning. The plane began to disintegrate in midair. It plummeted towards the ground. Juliane uh, found herself still strapped to her seat, and she was falling from two miles high over the Peruvian rainforest. Now, in Juliane's case, uh, experts credit the fact that she survived uh, for a number of reasons. She was harnessed; she was still strapped into her into her into her seat, and uh, she did break her collarbone upon impact. Um, but she spent 11 days in the rainforest, making her way through the water, uh, dealing with mosquitoes, uh, dealing with uh, you know <laughs> poisonous snakes and everything you can imagine. But her unlikely survival has been the subject of much speculation. Uh, it's known that she was still belted. She was still buckled into her seat. 
and it kind of shielded the cushion of the impact, obviously. But she was sitting apparently in the middle seat of a, a row of three seats. So it's kind of thought that as her as her bench, if it were, you know, were falling out of the sky, it almost acted like a parachute. You know, the width of it kind of, um, you know, uh, cushioned the air, almost, yeah, like a parachute. But uh, And others say that there was a thunderstorm updraft, and uh, kind of that helped as well. And the thick foliage at her landing site uh, kind of cushioned the blow. And, uh, you know, in some of her reports, she, she said that, you know, as she was falling towards the rainforest, the trees looked like little pieces of broccoli. How scary, how scary would this be? And as uh, as many as 14 other passengers uh, were later thought to have survived the initial crash, but they had died, they died uh, while they were waiting to be rescued. But while in the jungle, Yuliane dealt with insect bites, uh, a maggot infestation on her arm. After nine grueling days, uh, she was able to find an encampment. And she gave herself rudimentary first aid, um, a few hours later, you know, some, some loggers found her and they gave her more first aid and they took her to a, a more inhabited area where she was airlifted to a hospital. After recovering from her injuries, uh, Yuliane assisted the search parties in locating the crash site and recovering the bodies of victims. Um, sadly, her mom was one of those bodies that was recovered. Uh, but her story of double survival has been the subject of books and films ever since, including her autobiography, which is appropriately titled When I Fell from the Sky. And uh, later, uh, there was a documentary uh, created of this incident by director Werner Herzog, and it was called The Wings of Hope. And Herzog actually did a documentary on this because he had a personal interest in this story because apparently in 1971, he was actually scheduled to be on that flight that crashed. But at the last minute, uh, there was a change of plans that spared his life. Yuliane uh, eventually moved to Germany where she fully recovered from her injuries. Uh, like her parents, she studied biology at the University of Kiel and graduated in 1980. Uh, she received a doctorate from Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and she returned to Peru to conduct research in mammalogy, specializing in bats. Uh, she published her, her thesis in 1987, and in 1989, Yuliane married Eric Diller, who was an entomologist who specialized in uh, parasitic wasps. And in 2000, uh, Yuliane took over as director of Panguana following the death of her father. So she's now known as Yuliane Diller, and she serves as librarian at the, at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich. Her autobiography, When I Fell from the Sky, was released in 2011, and she received the uh, Corinne Literature Prize in 2011 for it. And in 2019, the government of Peru awarded her the Order of Merit for Distinguished Services and the degree of Grand Officer. Remarkable. I, you know, I remember hearing about this story when I was a young child. Uh, my grandma shared it to me or read it to me, and I think it was out of Fate magazine, if anybody recalls Fate magazine. I don't know if it's still in publication, but they kind of specialized in, like, lesser-known stories or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, strange happenings, things like that. And in reading those stories from Fate magazine, you know, as a child and hearing my grandma talk about incidents like this and, 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 you know, other things like Bigfoot and UFOs and just odd, odd happenings, it really got me hooked, you know, on this type of thing from a very young age. And, uh, you know, you know, back then when the, the, her plane went down, um, since then, you know, modern planes, I want to assure you, modern planes are designed to be able to withstand a lightning strike. 
Um, they are. It's scary, but true. And I, I know this for a fact because I was on a little plane that got struck by lightning many years ago on the way to Portland. And uh, one of the most, it was one of the scariest incidents of my life because when the, we were on a tiny, teeny tiny plane and lightning struck, the lights inside the cabin went out, the plane shimmied and shook and everyone gasped. You know, I, you know, your mind runs wild with worst case scenarios, but I, th I thought we were going down. Thankfully we didn't. And, um, Anyway, but, you know, that's enough about lightning. <laughs> People are going to start asking, what was episode seven about? And you're going to be like, I can't remember what it was, but he just kept talking about lightning the whole time. And uh, not that falling from the sky is a competition, but if it is, Yuliane's uh, level of badassery far exceeds the previous story of the skydiver who dodged the meteor. But uh, yet, even Yuliane's story of plummeting to Earth won't be found in the Guinness Book of World Records because that feat actually belongs to another woman named Vesna Volovich, who was an air stewardess who survived the highest ever fall by a human being after her plane exploded at 33,000 feet. So the following is a BBC article from 2016. Volovich was working on a Yugoslav Airlines Douglas DC-9 on the 26th of January 1972 when a suspected bomb brought down the plane along the mountains in Czechoslovakia. All 27 other passengers and crews died. But according to the investigators, Volovich was trapped by a food cart in the plane's tail section as it plummeted to earth in freezing temperatures. The tail landed in a heavily wooded and snow-blanketed part of the mountainside, which was thought to have cushioned the impact. Volovich was rescued by a woodsman who heard her screaming in the dark while debris came raining down from above. It was suspected that a bomb was planted inside the jet during a stopover in Copenhagen, Denmark, but nothing was ever proven and no arrests were ever made. After arriving in the hospital, Volovich fell into a coma for 10 days. She had a fractured skull, two crushed vertebrae, and she had a broken pelvis, several ribs, and both legs. She said, quote, I was broken and the doctors put me back together again. Nobody ever expected me to live this long. The fall gained Volovich a place in the Guinness Book of World Records in 1985 for the highest fall survived without a parachute. The stewardess was temporarily paralyzed from the waist down by the fall, but in time she made a near-full recovery and returned to work for the airline at a desk job. She never regained any memory of the incident or of her rescue, she said, and she continued to fly as a passenger. Uh, she said, quote, people always want to sit next to me on the plane. The spectacular survival story won Volovich celebrity status in Serbia, where she uh, channeled her fame into campaigning for political causes. She was fired from her job at the airline in 1990 after taking part in a protest against President, President Slobodan Milosevic, but avoided, she avoided arrest. And she continued for two more decades to fight against nationalism. She said, quote, I am like a cat. I have nine lives. But if nationalist forces in this country prevail, my heart will burst. But her heart did not burst. And that's actually what may have saved her life, according to the doctors. So you see, when she first applied to be a stewardess for this airline, she was in jeopardy of not being hired because she had extremely low blood pressure. And apparently that can be an issue when you're flying at high altitudes. So she, uh, she claims that she drank a ton of coffee right before her job interview, and it raised her blood pressure just enough that she passed the physical and she was hired by the airline. So on that fateful day when her plane crashed and the plane broke up, uh, the doctors think that, I mean, they were 
headed towards the ground with such velocity that the impact alone would have caused most people's hearts to burst. But since she had such low blood pressure, it actually saved her life. But anyways, in terms of miracles, you'd be hard-pressed to find one more shocking than this. So, you know, the next time that you're, you know, going about your day and you see an airplane flying, you know, way, way up there, way off in the distance, imagine what it would be like to fall from that height with no parachute and live to tell about it. So, again, it's uh, either the luckiest, she's the luckiest woman to ever walk the face of the earth, or there was divine intervention involved. But uh, either way, it's definitely so strange. And uh, after two consecutive stories about plane crashes, here's a little palate cleanser. Here's a story about a plane that landed safely, but not before the pilot spotted something kind of fishy happening down below. Returning from a week at his North Carolina vacation home, David Zentner, age 56, eased his Cessna 182 into a slow circle over his sprawling 40-acre ranch in LaBelle, Florida, preparing to land with his wife, Berna, by his side. As the plane buzzed over their house, Berna peered out the window and said, Hey, honey, there's a truck in our driveway. And then they watched a stranger walk up to their front door. Zentner made a second pass, and the man was now walking around the house peeking in the windows. At one point, he looked up at the low-flying Cessna. Back at the driveway, the strange man quickly hooked up the Zentner's $1,200 trailer to his silver truck, and he took off down the street. I can't believe he's actually doing this right in front of us, Zentner cried. Determined to catch the thief, Zentner tracked the truck as it rattled through the small town of LaBelle and then headed west towards Fort Myers. He then landed at LaBelle Airport, jumped out of the plane, and called 911. After his detailed description, local police were able to apprehend the subject and their stolen trailer in about 30 minutes. The thief is awaiting trial. Zentner still can't believe he witnessed the whole thing by air. The odds of something like this happening are so astronomical, he said. Police want me to buy them a lottery ticket. All right, sounds like Mr. Zentner might have a future in law enforcement. Maybe he could fly one of those uh, police helicopters and, you know, follow high-speed chases and, you know, catch criminals from a bird's eye perspective. But uh, next, uh, we have a heartwarming story of good fortune. And uh, sometimes, as you know, uh, sometimes it turns out that what we're looking for has been right in front of us the whole time. Steve Flegg of Grand Rapids, Michigan, knew he'd been adopted as a baby, and when he turned 18 in 2003, he decided he'd track down his birth mother. The agency that he'd been adopted from gave him his mother's name, which was Christine Talady. But online searches didn't turn up any results, and eventually Flegg let it go. In 2007, though, he searched for the name again online, and this time the search results included a home address near the Lowe's store where Flegg worked as a delivery man. When he mentioned the coincidence to his boss, his boss was like, You mean Chris Talady, who works here? Flegg and Talady, who was age 45, was a cashier, and they had said hi to each other a few times at the store, but they'd never really gotten the chance to talk. He hadn't even known her name, uh, and Flegg thought, There's no possible way that she could be my mom. For a few months, Flegg avoided Talady. He said, quote, I wasn't sure how to approach her. Uh, and finally, an adoption agency employee volunteered to call Talady on his behalf. When Talady realized that the nice guy she'd been waving to at the store was her son, she began crying. She's always hoped to meet her birth son one day, and later that day, mother and son talked for almost three hours at a nearby bar. Uh, she'd given him up for uh, adoption in 1985 when she was 23 years old, and she wasn't quite ready to be a mom at that time. Uh, now... 
She's married with two other children, and Talady says, I have a complete family now. You know, there's literally countless stories like this. Um, true tales involving, you know, luck, fortune, serendipity, Im improbable odds. We could easily make this into a 10-part series. And I'll definitely cover uh, more stories like this on a future episode, but we, <laughs> we eventually need to wrap this up. And I've saved the best for last. The last two accounts might just leave your jaw hanging open in disbelief. But real quick, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you're enjoying So Strange so far, take a second and uh, rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. Feel free to spread the word to family and friends who, who are into this kind of content, and thanks in advance for doing so. It kind of ensures that I can keep cranking out new episodes for many years to come. And if you're enjoying So Strange, uh, feel free to check out my other podcast, which is called Paranormal Dads with my good buddies Eddie and Pat, uh, the show is about exploring the world's monsters, myths, and mysteries, and we have quite a few chuckles in the process. And last but not least, uh, I'll have you know the secret letter for today's episode is R. So you might want to jot that down. Each episode of Season 1, I give you one letter. If you keep track and collect all the letters by the season finale, you'll have all the letters that make up the mystery word. If you unscramble that word and email it to andymyersmanagement at gmail.com, it's going to qualify you for all sorts of perks and prizes and bonus content. So if you like, <laughs> if you like a challenge and you like cryptic messages, that, that'll keep you busy. But without further ado, uh, this next story is short and sweet, but it is certainly so strange. In 1975, a 17-year-old boy was killed while riding his moped. He was killed exactly a year after his 17-year-old brother was killed while riding the same moped in the same intersection by the same taxi driven by the same driver and uh, carrying the exact same passenger. So, you know, history tragically repeating itself one year later down to every last detail. And this is a true story. It actually took place in Hamilton, Bermuda. And uh, the brothers were named Neville and Erskine Eben. And I don't know how we could even begin to calculate the odds of this all happening twice. Uh, all I can say is that I hope the family got rid of that moped. You know, I don't really, personally, I don't really believe in curses or hexes, but that case is so strange that I'd be covering all my bases uh, just to ensure that more tragedy didn't ensue. But it was the same driver, carrying the same passenger, same moped, same intersection, same family. Oh, it's just, it just, <laughs> it's, it boggles the mind. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, we have the extraordinary tale of a man from Croatia. Called the luckiest, unluckiest man in the world, Croatian Fran Selic has cheated death not once, not twice, but an amazing seven times. His first brush with death was in 1962 while traveling in a train in January. The train flipped off the tracks and fell into a freezing river. Bystanders pulled him to the shore safely, with only a broken arm and hypothermia, while 17 other passengers uh, unfortunately drowned. And then only a year later, in 1963, during his first and last plane ride, uh, the plane lost altitude and plummeted to the earth. Fran was blown out of a malfunctioning plane door and somehow managed to land on a haystack, completely unharmed, and uh, 19 others were actually killed in that plane wreck. Three years after that, in 1966, a bus that he was riding in slid off the road into a river, 
uh, drowning all four passengers. Uh, Selleck, however, swam safely to shore and only sustained a few cuts and bruises. Two years later, in what was arguably one of his weirdest reasons for almost dying, uh, he was trying to teach his son how to hold a gun. He hadn't realized the safety was off and ended up shooting himself in the testicles. Ouch. Uh, he lived through uh, that ordeal, but his testicles did not. And uh, then in 1970 and 1973, he got into accidents where the car ended up catching fire. Aside from a few singed hairs, he managed to get out of both accidents absolutely unharmed yet again. But his dance with death wasn't over yet. Later in 1995, he was hit by a bus in Zagreb, but only suffered minor injuries. And a year later, he managed to avoid a head-on collision with a United Nations truck on a mountain road by swerving into a guardrail. The guardrail broke under the force of the car, and Fran, not wearing his seatbelt, was ejected out of the car when the door flew open. He watched as the car fell 300 feet into the ravine below. And to top off his luck, in 2003, two days after he turned 73 years old, Fran Selic won a million dollars from the Croatian National Lottery. What a birthday present. Okay, what the actual fuck? <laughs> Hands down, no questions about it. That borders on superhuman, man. That's some sort of Hunger Games stuff right there. Survive at all costs. And then the universe throws a bone. You know what? It throws you a bone at the end of your life and is like, hey, here's a cool million for your troubles. Thanks. You know, come again. <laughs> what the heck, man? That's wild. It, I, I mean, poor guy. Or, you know, I don't know. Is, is it worth it to get a million dollars? Is that the price you pay? For the, to find the universal balance. I don't know. But here we are again, coming full circle, coming back to the conversation of what constitutes luck. You know, what's the difference between good luck and bad luck? Does luck even exist? Are misfortunes, you know, merely results of being at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or do some people defy all reason and logic by somehow attracting chaos to themselves like a magnet? If luck does exist... I suppose the difference between good luck and bad luck is razor thin and is open to interpretation. We could say that Franz Selleck was the unluckiest man in history for having experienced so much trauma, or we could say he's the luckiest man ever for having survived it all. Out of tragedy comes triumph, and out of misfortune comes bragging rights for having survived such an ordeal. As they say, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, and I guess if that's true, then Mr. Selleck must be the strongest of us all. It's stories like this that leaves us asking the question, what are the odds? We live in a world where somehow these one in a billion occurrences actually happen. A world that can sometimes feel so dang lucky and so strange.